One of my favorite authors is Chuck Swindoll, and he wrote a book a number of years ago titled Getting Through the Tough Stuff. And in that book, he tells a story about a friend of his who experienced deep shame. This man was at one time a very respected pastor. He had a good marriage. He had an outstanding family. But there existed a twist in the narrative of his life that no one knew about. And eventually, that twist came to light, and it became public knowledge that he was involved in an extramarital affair with a member of his church. Once the secret was out, he had to face the music. And so he stood before the church, and he confessed his sin. He felt embarrassment and deep public shame. Several years later, Chuck Swindoll talked with his friend about that awful period of his life, and this is what his friend said. I don't know that I have the words to describe the shame that my family and I experienced. I found that I could negotiate my way around guilt, but I could not rationalize shame. Shame penetrates deeper than embarrassment. It cuts wider than disappointment. Its scars are ugly and often permanent. Being the lowest form of self-hatred, shame has driven many people to collapse under the burden to retreat into a life uh, devoid of joy and for some to take the most drastic action ending their life. Shame keeps a young mom chained to her her emotionally traumatic past of sexual abuse at the hand of her mom's boyfriend. Shame attacks a teenager lost in a world of confusion brought on by his inability to learn as fast as his fellow students. Shame haunts a middle-aged woman who's told by all of her friends she just needs to move on following her husband's reckless affair and their subsequent bitter divorce. Shame holds back a child born with a disability from experiencing the carefree life of school recess and field trips. Shame preoccupies a businessman every time he sees a former colleague, even though it's been years since he was fired for embezzlement. Shame is one of those hidden secrets in our soul, something we carry behind our masks, unhealed spiritual and emotional wounds that seem to scar us for life. Shame rarely shows up on the surface in most people's lives. A person may seem to have it all together, but deep down they're suffering from the relentless feeling that something is seriously wrong with them or the past haunts them and they fear that someone will eventually find out what they did and then everyone will know. Shame disguises itself as your true self, but it isn't. It feels like it is. It feels like it's rooted in who you are, but actually, it's only rooted in what you've done, or even worse, what's been done to you. It might be a broken relationship, a secret affair, a hidden abortion, an an addiction, or a, a promiscuous past. It could be any number of things that makes you feel like a second class Christian. Or shame may come from something that someone else did to you. 
They stole your innocence, violated your trust, perpetrated abuse. It, it doesn't matter how long ago it was, if that wound never healed, it can feel like it happened just yesterday. And whenever it bubbles to the surface, it makes you feel like part of you is unlovable. The series we're in, this is week four of True Identity. The subtitle is See Yourself the Way God Sees You. Chip Ingram, who is one of the resources we've been using for this series, writes that most, the most important thing about each of us is how God sees you. The second most important thing is how we see ourselves. Among all the lies and fears and feelings that distort our perspective of ourselves, shame, shame is potentially the most destructive. So what is shame? Well, shame is a painful feeling of regret or self-hatred or humiliation. Brene Brown describes shame this way. She said, shame is the painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. It's said that a person who struggles with guilt says, I did something bad. But the person who struggles with shame says, I am bad. Shame is a full-fledged attack on an individual's identity. And however a person experiences shame, it's always debilitating. But listen to this. Shame keeps us from believing you are worthy. But if you've struggled with shame, you need to know you're not alone. You're experiencing a universal occurrence. And if, you're, and if there is one redeeming aspect of shame, it's that it sends us searching for a savior, somebody to rescue you. And when you hear the gospel and you learn that it addresses our shame, our spirit responds to that because we're drawn to freedom. We know we need rescued from this crippling Influence in our lives. And if Jesus, in Jesus, we find a life changing antidote to our deepest, most personal wounds. So, what is God's plan for shame, for, for you and me, the shame we experience? Well, shame, shame is powerful and debilitating, but it's not as powerful as grace. It's important to remember that. Though shame has some power, it doesn't have ultimate power. Grace has always had an answer for shame. In fact, the first time we see it in the Bible is in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve tried to hide from God that they had sinned. They knew the right thing to do, but they chose to defy God, and then they tried to hide from him. They covered themselves with fig leaves and tried to ignore the problem. But God addressed their shame the same way he does today. He asked them two questions. The first 
was this, Genesis 3, verse 11, he says, and he said, who told you that you were naked? And in that, in that question, he's confronting, he's forcing them to confront their own shame. And then he asks the second question, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Initially, Adam and Eve tried to shift blame. Adam tried to blame Eve, and Eve tried to blame the serpent. But God covered their shame, and he forgave them. And then he set them on a path of restoration with the promise of a redeemer who would come. Do you remember what happens when we were born again? Do you remember? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 517, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. When you're in Christ, you're a new creature. The old is passed away. New things have come. The promise to be a new creation puts our past in the past and our present and our future in a process of all things becoming new. God's plan to address shame was found in the gospel. Well, our text this morning is found in Ephesians, the first chapter. We're going to start with verse 17 if you uh, want to follow along and turn there to get ready. In the opening verses of this first chapter of Ephesians, Paul reminds us of who we are in God's eyes and the spiritual blessings that we possess. He points out that we are loved and chosen. We are wanted and we are adopted into God's family. We've been redeemed and we're valuable and we're secure and we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul asks God to move these truths from the page of this letter into the hearts of the people reading the letter. So I want to read to us, for us, our text, starting with verse 17, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. Paul writes, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. In this text, Paul makes two life-changing requests of God. First, he asks God to give the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He's asking for insight and awareness for them, a glimpse of the divine plan and the power of God. It's an understanding of the deep truths 
of the gospel. He's asking for these aha moments from the Holy Spirit so that they can see the truth and realize this is how it applies to my sin and the shame of my past. The spirit of revelation unveils truth. And Paul wants their view of God and themselves to change so that they might experience him as their father and understand the value that God has placed on them. We should pray this as well for our spouse or for our family or for our coworkers or neighbors or friends. And here's why. Because if they know God more deeply, all the other issues in their lives will fall in line. Well, then Paul makes a second request of God. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. God, enlighten their hearts, verse 18. That they would see things differently. That was Paul's hope. And why was that? Well, he goes on, he says, in order that they may know. And then Paul spells out three things that he wants his readers to know. If you want to see change, these are three things you should know as well. The first one is this. The hope to which he has called you. Verse 18. Paul's referencing our salvation here. The Bible talks about hope, but it's not just wishful thinking. That's not what the Bible talks about. Biblical hope is certain. It's looking forward to what is absolutely going to happen. The object of our hope hasn't happened yet, but it is already a fact. So hope is an anticipation of what we know to be true. God promises a new heaven and a new earth, and Jesus is going to return. We know those to be true. They haven't happened yet, but God has promised them. So we know them to be true. The hope to which he has called you. He wants you to know that hope. The second thing that Paul wants his readers to know is the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. I found this to be really interesting. Paul's letters tell us that Jesus is the heir of all things, and we are co-heirs with him. And since Jesus stands to inherit all things, and we are co-heirs, then we also will inherit all things. That's part of what Paul means by the riches of his glorious inheritance. But there's more to it than that. We also need to understand the riches of God's inheritance in us, his holy people. Think about it this way. I have two daughters. They're grown. They're adult women now. And they're going to receive an inheritance from me someday. But they're also my inheritance Watching my daughters grow, going through the ups and downs of life, and then marrying great guys, and, and having the, their own homes, and learning valuable lessons, becoming Christ-like in their lives, and all of that, and so much more, brings me tremendous joy as I watch them grow. My inheritance is the incredible blessing of what they are to me. What if that's how God sees you and me? What if we believed that we get an inheritance and we are a treasure to our Heavenly Father? 
Imagine God saying, you are my treasure. And I want you to believe that. Never forget that. That's Paul's point here. He says, his glorious inheritance in his holy people. That's a picture of tremendous value. When God places that in our hearts, when we understand that, it'll force shame to become a distant memory. Well, there's a third thing that Paul wanted his readers to know, and that is found in verse 19. It's his incomparably great power for us who believe. This is true because the Holy Spirit is in us when we commit to Jesus. We are filled with God's power because God actually takes residence up in our hearts. And then Paul lists three examples of how God's power works. The first is it's the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead and then seated him in the heavenly realms. Here's the deal. You and I, we have access to the very same power that brought Jesus back from the dead and then saw him ascend into heaven to sit down at the right hand of God. Same power. And then another, a second example of the power that Paul is talking about here is it's a power that comes because God has placed all things under Jesus' feet. Jesus has all authority. He's at the right hand of God above all other forces at work in the universe. And that authority is part of the power that we've been given. And then thirdly, God appointed Jesus to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, Paul says. Jesus' position gives us the power to win battles and to overcome obstacles. When we think, I can't break, my, break through my shame or I'll never be able to change, I'll never be able to break free from that addiction or, or I can't ever seem to get away from those temptations, And then we end up listening to the self-talk that keeps us down. This is the power that has the potential to overcome all of those things. There's nothing that can inhibit our ability to live in the power of the resurrection and walk in the supernatural strength. Shame is ineffective in the face of the power of God. And that power is at work in us if we're in Christ Jesus. If that is true, I believe it is, then this supernatural power is at work inside of everyone who has ever put their trust and faith in Jesus and received the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, we can use this power to overcome all obstacles in this life, especially shame. Some see shame as illegitimate. It's never your fault. But the Bible sees shame both as true shame and there's also a category of false shame. True shame is the kind that comes from falling short of God's standards. None of us are perfect. It's the parts that fit into those ideas of our past failures, understandings of moral lapses that we had at one time, or sinful desires like greed and lust. 
sins like lies or immoral behaviors and everything else that we may have done that violated or contradicts God's character. It is good to feel regret over those things, to know that those are what cause the separation between man and God. But it's also important to know, Romans 3, 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I would circle that word all so you know you're not alone. It's, it's, a, it's a problem everybody has had to face and deal with. So there is legitimate shame, but then there is also the some of us who struggle with false shame. False shame originates from the standards that others set for us. These are often standards that are impossible to live up to, and they're devoid of grace. So how do we break through the forces of genuine guilt and false distortions that produce shame? Let me give you three steps, I think critical steps, to break the grip of shame. Number one, receive Jesus. I know many of you have done that, but some of you are listening. You're struggling with mistakes you've made in your past, and you have yet to receive God's forgiveness, the grace that Jesus came so that our sins might be washed away. This is the first step to everything in life. Listen to what we read in John, the first chapter, verse 12. It says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When we recognize that we've sinned and that we need a savior, we confess that we've, we've, we haven't measured up, we ask for God's forgiveness, and we put our faith in Jesus asking him to save us and give us power to be able to follow him. That is the very first step to breaking the grip of shame. Step number two, ask the Father. This is what Paul did in Ephesians when he wanted the readers to know the truth. He started praying. He asked God, We may not know how to begin that conversation with God, but the important thing is to begin it. And if you're not sure how to pray for your family or your friends, just follow Paul's model. This is what he prayed. Father, I ask you to give whoever it is you pray for, in my case, my family, a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they might know you better, that the eyes of my family's hearts would be enlightened so that they might know the hope of your calling, the riches of your glorious inheritance in your holy people and your incomparably great power toward those who believe. Pray those words. Just go back and pray through our text, pray for those who need Jesus. Pray that they would know that they're adopted, loved, redeemed. Put them in God's hands so that they know they too are secure and they can know that they're sealed by the Holy Spirit so that they would get a glimpse, 
of God's amazing love and his power. Well, that brings us to step number three. And that is simply to believe some key truths, three of them. As we learn these truths, we will experience increasing freedom from our shame. Truth number one, your past no longer defines you. In this letter to the Ephesian church, Paul wanted his readers to know that God had removed their sins. I love Psalm 103, verse 12. Love it. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God's removed our sins. And yet too many people allow their past sins to define them, define who they are, even, even after years of following Jesus. Your past may be painful. We won't deny that, nor will we skip over it. But allow God to work in it. Allow him to work through it. Don't bury it. You can experience freedom from the parts of your past that cause shame if you're willing to bring it out of the shadows and open up about it. If you're dealing with shame, I wonder who in your life is mature and safe enough to hear the secrets that hold you prisoner. Or maybe there's no one. Well, we, we would love to connect with you. We've got, a, we've got counselors that we would be more than open to connecting you with one of those counselors if that's the route that you want to go. You can reach out to us through the app or the website and we'll follow up with you. Truth number two, once your past is no longer defines you, it's important that you know your future happiness is guaranteed. Nobody can take that from you because you're God's child. You're his treasure. You may go through ups and downs. You may even go and make more mistakes along the way, but you will still belong to God. And one day you will meet Jesus and you will spend eternity with him. And there you will experience the ultimate joy and nothing, nothing in this life can keep you from that. You can actually live with the confidence that God has your back. You don't have to worry about what other people think or what they say because your future is going to be absolutely awesome. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.9, he says, that is what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, your future is so amazing, this side of heaven, you can't even begin to comprehend it. If you're filled with anxiety about the future, I want you to just lift your eyes up toward heaven Everything in this life, all the concerns that you have, it's important to note, they're just temporary. But your future, it's eternal. You'll still face storms in this life, but none of them can touch the future that God has promised you. Well, that brings us to truth number three. You have inconceivable power 
from God to meet all your challenges and opportunities. This truth summarizes the rest of Paul's prayer, verses 19 through 23, where he talks about the power of God. We just spent some time walking through that. All of those examples of power, the power of the resurrection, the power that put Jesus above every other power in this universe, the power that fills everything with the presence of God, all of those powers, we may not fully understand those powers from God, but it's still available to us. And Paul wants us to know that we have power to break through obstacles, even powerful obstacles like shame. You no longer have to live shackled by it. Well, as I wrap up this message, I want to reemphasize the action steps that I've been sharing each week to help us expose the lies that the enemy is telling us and then replace those lies with truth. The first action is I want to encourage you to write down the lies that you become aware of, that you believe about yourself all the distorted and unhealthy ways that you see yourself. And also I want to encourage you to write down the ways or the places where you look to find value for yourself. And then spend some time praying, asking God, just those two lists, go through those two lists, and ask God to reveal to you how the truth that you are wanted by him and that you are competent and safe in him and how that affects how you see yourself and where you find value. And then the second action step is to start reading the Gospels. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four biographies, if you will, of the life of Jesus. And as you read through those, I want you to write down the ways that Jesus cared for his followers and also the truths that as you read those truths, they kind of resonate with you. Write those down as well. And the reason we do this is found in Romans, the 12th chapter, verse two. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're talking about transformation, replacing lies with the truth. We renew our mind by the Bible. It is vital that the word of God regularly be renewing our mind. It challenges our thinking. It exposes the lies that we've been believing that have kept us living as spiritual orphans rather than as sons and daughters of the Almighty God. And then the third action step is simply this. Praise God for his grace. As God points out the lies, reveals the lies that the enemy has told us, that we are living in fear or insecurity or, or we're not worthy. All of those lies, he points those out and tells us that we're actually saved by grace. Let's praise him for that grace that he offers that makes our salvation possible. Let's praise him for all that Jesus did. Praise him for the Holy Spirit that seals us and is the conduit of God's power in our lives. I want to encourage you to take these action steps to expose the enemy's lies. And let's live, let's live by the truth. Let's pray together. 
Father, God, we praise you today for your grace. We thank you for all that Jesus has done so that we might have our sins washed away. God, thank you for your forgiveness, all that you have given to us, Lord. We are so grateful for that. Lord, I'm thankful for the reminder, Paul's words in this first chapter, that we're loved by you and we're chosen by you. We've been adopted into your family. We're redeemed. You see us as valuable and we're secure in your care, having been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And God, it is great comfort to know today that your power allows us to break the bonds of shame. Because of you and your love and grace, we have hope. We have an eternal inheritance that we can look forward to. No one has the authority to take that away from us. And God, for that power, power over the obstacles of life like shame, I praise you. Because of grace, we're no longer defined by the failures of our past, the sins of our past. We've been forgiven. We've been set free. God, I pray for anyone who's not taken that step yet, that they would reach out to you. They would reach out to one of us, say, hey, I want to put Jesus first in my life. I'm tired of living under the burden of shame and guilt. God, I pray for those lives today. Take a step. Lord, thank you for loving us more than we deserved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.